Photo Mission Exposure, a podcast for photographers. Well, Greg, um, thanks for coming in and sitting down and having a chat um, on Photo Mission Exposure. Um, what I normally get guests to do is I normally take them back to a point where they first picked the camera up. Can you remember when you first... Yeah, I remember the exact moment, grade two. Grade two. Yes. <laughs> so I borrowed my mum's Kodak Instamatic camera with a roll of film to go to St. Helena Island on a school excursion. And this was a very special thing because they were worth a lot of money back then. Yeah. Uh, and the cost of processing film was expensive. And so I felt really honoured to have that amount of trust in me to go and take these really great photos of St. Helena Island. So I took a lot of time and care to compose things perfectly and you know, make sure that everything was great. Yep. When we finally got the photos back, they were all blurry. I mean, now in hindsight, the roll of film was probably old, had been left in a hot car or wow. glove box or something. Uh, it wasn't really my fault, but I was so disappointed that I think that it, you know, even to this day, that feeling of disappointment of ruining those photographs you know, made me want to be a great photographer. And I really enjoyed doing it as well. Yeah. And I think it happens quite a lot. For those who can remember film, is that there was always that disappointment. Sometimes you went out and you got quite excited. You tried to capture some stuff and you thought, great, I've got some really great captures, only to be disappointed when you got the film processed and, hmm. and found that they didn't they didn't turn out the way you, you wanted. So um, so that was quite early, really, to be at that yeah. age. And But even your thought process there of actually taking the time because a lot of you know a lot of people that age just shoot the camera randomly just be snapping away but you were actually looking at what you were shooting yeah I think I might have been an unusual child so I was very big on going through my mother's women's weekly magazines and things and pulling out pictures and making scrapbooks of images that I loved yeah and I'd been doing this forever going through libraries looking at articles and photographs and particularly you know when I discovered photojournalism yep. going through and looking at images has been part of my life yep. since I was born. So those images that you saw in those magazines so you were kind of work, trying to work out at an early age how they were captured basically you're looking at how that oh not no and and people who know me would realize that you know a technical photographer I am not I'm more artistic you know and I think you know artisticity is something more important than the technical capture I was looking at the images and trying to understand what excited me about them. You know, what is this feeling I'm getting from this photograph? It makes me want to go there and look at, look at this, or these famous people, or this dramatic crime scene or something. I was looking at them trying to understand how it made me feel. So after that first photographic experience, where did you, what was, the, what was your next, pro, how did you progress from there? Well, I progressed through school I was a bit of a bit of a sporting jock in my day so I didn't really you know even though I was quite good at art I didn't think I'd be pursuing it um, marine biology was kind of the thing that I wanted to do but when I was about 15 my uncle who happens to be a at that stage he was a, a principal of a of a school up in uh, Yipoon yeah. he gave me a camera his hand-me-down it was a Canon FTB yeah uh, which you know I can't remember the year it was born sorry it was made but it would have been a 60s camera, I'm guessing. It's a film, metal, silver, solid camera. Yep. And from there, you know, I put through a few rolls of film and learned how to how to use it badly <laughs> <laughs> to start with. But that was, you know, when I was 15, that was kind of the moment where, you know, I was enjoying this and I wanted to take it further. And I did a lot of work experience too. So, you know, I was the only kid that spent all school holidays you know, asking newspapers to take, pick me up as a work experience kid, Courier Mail, Bayside Bulletin, uh, the Rural Mail, which is also like a, you know, a country newspaper. Yep. So all of those people didn't, I didn't take no for an answer. Yep. Yep. So, so obviously from, from an early age, you, you really kind of probably knew your career path, did you? Or that it was going to be somewhere in that photographic, is that your thinking or? Yeah, pretty much from 15, I was going to be a photographer. Yep. I mean, I didn't know what kind of photographer. I guess I assumed to be photojournalism, but that's more so because I didn't really understand much more than that. Yeah. Yep. So after that, you know, you did that work experience and that type of stuff. Yep. So that obviously, that, that kind of fanned the fire. That really got you excited or 
Yeah, yeah, actually it, it was that. I, I went out with their uh, journalists and photographers and, you know, back then in those days, you know, I worked with, well, I got to work under some pretty, pretty well-known respected photographers and uh, picture editors as well. And one that comes to mind was um, Jim Fenwick, who was a bit of a, a legend at the Corrie Mail at the time. But I used to be able to go out to these events like the cricket or celebrities or Jim Sawley, the Lord Mayor, and photograph what, whatever they were doing at that particular moment. And that's, that is great for a 15, 16-year-old kid. Very exciting. Yeah. Um, so that, that excitement was probably the first, you know, the first time that I, I really loved photography and had this vision of what I was going to do for my life. But the, the critical moment for me was seeing images come out of the emulsion in the dark room. That was the magic of photography. Yeah, and that look we've we've heard that before. Um, people said that first experience in the dark room when you you got the you've got the paper in the developer, and then the image starts to come to life, and and basically that's the hook for a lot of people. That's the point that they just you know want to keep doing this. Yeah, voodoo magic. That's what it was like. <laughs> it was coming out, and the way you would burn and dodge to get extra information out of your image, then you'd put your fingers in the chemistry and. You know, uh, try and rub a certain area to, to to get more chemical reaction to bring out greater detail in your highlight areas. Yep. You know that was that was great and was always the magic of photography. And the funny thing is, is I get that same joy and thrill out of seeing a raw file process through Lightroom and Photoshop. So I love that just as much as I did the darkroom. Yep. So where where did you progress from that? Did you then go off and study photography? What was your yes, I. I um, wanted to go to the Queensland College of Art and study a degree in photography. And I pretty much knew that from the age of 15, that that's what I was going to do. Back then, photography was the most difficult subject to get into, the most popular subject at university. And the Queensland College of Art was one of the best three degrees in Australia. So for me, there were 5,500 applicants for 80 spots. Yep. And a lot of those 80 spots were taken up with continuing students or older age students, mature students. And there were really only 20 spots for school leavers straight out of high school. A lot of people had to go and do a diploma of photography to get in. But I had a portfolio. A portfolio shot with the Courier Mail, with Bayside yep. Bulletin, Rural Press. So I, I, I had a very good portfolio. In fact, so good that people were uh, questioning me. Yep. Earl Bridger, who interviewed me to get into the Queensland College of Art, actually started asking me, what, what lens did you use to, to shoot this? And I said, I don't know, but it was big because <laughs> I didn't know. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think you touched on it. And um, and I, I've known you for a few years now, mainly through the collective, and I've, I've seen you shoot. And I know that, um, like you just said, like you're not so much the technical um, side of it, but definitely on the creative side of it. Um, that's where your passion is because you know how you can make an image look and and, and kind of bring that feeling to the image. Um, when I look at your images, I was trying to work out a, a word to describe them, and I've kind of come up with a word that, when I looked at particularly some of your stuff that's just come from, from Europe, is they're grand. They're grand images. Like, you look at them and there's just so much happening in that image. It's kind of, you're lost. You're looking around and there's so much, you know, and to me it's like an, it's an experience to look at one of your images. So that comes from that, having that passion for creating this you know, it's like a work of art, really. Yeah, I believe that everybody has, they're born with a little spark of creativity. It, you know, maybe it's more in some and less in others, but it's a little spark and you have to feed it. You have to keep nurturing your creativity and keep that creative fire burning for fear of it being snuffed out. And yeah. once it's snuffed out, it's impossible to restart again. Yeah. So for me, everything I've done is around keeping true to my creativity. If I don't want to shoot weddings anymore, I stop. If I, if I decide that today I'm a bird photographer, I, I photograph birds. When I've had enough of that, I'll do travel, or yep. portraits, whatever. Whatever I feel like doing is what I'm going to do. Um, now, how I would describe my images, there's two big influences in my photography. One of them is the AIPP. You know, I've continually um, evolved my work to try and win awards. Yep. And I started doing that originally to feel to help me feel like I was good enough to belong amongst my peers. Once that was overcome and I felt comfortable, then I was trying to beat. I was trying to compete and beat them and win awards. Yeah. And so that was a big part of my life for a long time to get to my 
my master photographer status with the APP. Um, but then after that, I started posting photographs on Instagram, which is completely different. Yep. Because gold at APA, which is the Australian Professional Photographic Awards, and gold on Instagram are two different, two different things. things. And they don't talk. <laughs> so, <laughs> One is the amount of saturation you've used. <laughs> yes. So if you look at my work today, you can probably see that there's this competing idea that one, I'm trying to win awards, and one, I'm trying to take pretty photographs to get an extra 100 likes on Instagram. Yep. And, if, and, and that's when my work is evolving to, to sort of bring these two ideas together. So yeah, I'm, you say that I, I make grand photographs. That's, not, that's pretty good. I would say I make pretty photographs. Yep. My photography stuff, it's pretty. And I'm trying to, trying to take photographs that are pretty. Yep. Because that's, I mean, look, for most people, when they see an image, if you can evoke that um, feeling of happiness, you've done, as a photographer, you've done a, you know, a good job. Yeah. So, so you, you went through the, um, your study. When you finished your study, what was the progress after you kind of had finished the. Yeah. So, out of those five and a half thousand applicants that wanted to do a degree in photography, only six of those people graduated in three years. I decided early on that, yes, I wanted to do this. I wanted my degree in my piece of paper, but I would rather get a pass than a distinction yeah. if it meant failing something else. So I passed everything all the way through university. And the only subject I got a high distinction for was portraiture. So when I finished university, I don't know, I guess like any young person does, I thought that the world was going to knock on my door and offer me a job. But nobody knocked. <laughs> and then I kind of made this realization that I had to go out and get my own career. Yep. Because it, it's, it is hard and competitive out there. So I went and worked for a camera house on the Gold Coast, which is no longer there. Yep. I lasted about five weeks there. Yep. <laughs> that didn't go so well. I mean, the biggest problem was I couldn't remember the texts and specs of all the cameras. Because that's <laughs> one, of the, one of the criteria. Like People are coming and asking you know what what this yeah. camera's got over this camera and obviously quite often it is that technical stuff that people have they do the comparisons i had no idea but i wanted to be a photographer so pretty much after a frustrating day of working you know at a camera house on the gold coast i um i called the local glamour portrait studio which happened to be star shots on the gold coast yeah and this um man answered the phone and i said hi my name's greg sullivan I want a job. <laughs> and he says, hmm, very good, young man. I'm in my studio now. You come here right now and bring a model and take, do a shoot. I didn't realize at the time, but it was the owner of Star Shots who was up on the Gold Coast drinking champagne in the studio. Yeah. And so I turned up there um, with, a, with a girl um, and I had no idea how to use their prison system camera was a medium format of a MIA 645, yep. which I was familiar with from university. So I could load the film yep. and do what I had to do, do the shots. And my portraiture wasn't too bad. I knew how to use the lights, but I didn't know how to use their, their um, uh, prism system, which was a system, an early digital camera uh, hybrid that was made by Kodak at the time. So I worked it out and I got it done. And this guy sort of looks at my work and he goes, hmm, because I think he was dropping me in it because he knew it was difficult and he didn't think I could run it. Yep. I think I was there for his amusement. <laughs> but I did it. Yep. And he looked at the photo and he looked at me sideways and said, well, under the, under the conditions, you've actually done a pretty good job. Um, when can you go to Sydney? Um, tomorrow? <laughs> so I had 60 bucks in my wallet yep. and I caught a train to Sydney. Yep. Actually, that no, was a bus. I tell a lie. And it was a greyhound. It's caught a, caught, a, caught a bus to Sydney. So the purpose of that was that to get some training, or, or what was the purpose of travelling to Sydney? Well, their head office was based in Darlinghurst in Sydney. Yep. So what you know, I was look. I'd been to art university. I wasn't like a naive school kid anymore, but I was kind of like a big country boy as well. So what I found out when I got down there is um, uh, the person who owned the studio based the studio in um, Oxford Street in Sydney because they are a major sponsor of Mardi Gras and they're very big in the gay community. Yep. And I think that he thought that I was gay <laughs> and he thought that oh, I might fit in very well with their business model. Yep. Um, 
And so he brought me down there. I was on 10 bucks an hour to learn the art of photography. And it was, it was very interesting. I went through a, a training period with, they had some photographers at the time. They're just, you know, outstanding portrait photographers. That they were really good. Even by today's comparisons, they were outstanding photographers. But there was one, I had one rival for my position. Um, a guy called Levi, I can't remember now his last name. He was a French photographer who was quite renowned. He'd had work published in Black and White magazine, uh, international reputation. Yeah. And I had to compete with this guy. Don't know what he was doing then. Now in hindsight, you look back and you know it was weird, right? Yes. So what the task was in the end, because I didn't realize this, I was auditioning for a position that didn't exist. Um, and so pretty much when the owner of the studio had decided that, all right, there's no, there's no job, I'm going to give them an impossible task and, um, and they'll let themselves out of the door. So my task was to go out on the streets of Oxford Street and talk someone into getting their photographs done and sell them $1,000 worth of photographs. Yeah. And this would have been about 97 $1,000 was a lot of money back then. For photos, for someone who yeah. didn't walk out of their house thinking, wow, I'm going to drop a 1000 bucks in photos today. But, you know, I mean, the truth was, at that time of my life, I was a tall, nice-looking young guy. So I just found um, a cute English backpacker yep. and talked her into it. Yep. And guess what? She bought $1,000 worth of photographs. But the other guy, um, sorry, I remember his name now. I don't know if I should mention it. But... You know, you can probably look it up. So this person is a French photographer. I'll just stick with the name Levi because that's not his actual name. Yep. Um, he was watching my shoot and he kept on standing too close to me, like really uncomfortably close while I was shooting. Yep. And I said, oh, you know, sorry, sorry, can you just move back a little bit? Oh, yeah, sorry, no, no problem. Cool. And then he'd be back there again, like literally you know, touching me. No, go, no, please, please stop. <laughs> <laughs> over there, you're freaking me out, man. Anyway, long story short, he did talk someone into coming in to get some photos done, but he was a homeless guy. <laughs> and the guy signed his name Filthy McNashie. Okay. So Filthy McNashie did it in exchange for a couple of cigarettes. Yep. So it didn't really go well for this person called Levi, and he found himself out of a job, and yep. I found myself in a job. Yep. A couple of weeks later, he was the guy on Bondi Beach waving a butter knife at police and got shot multiple times and killed on Bondo Beach. Jeez. Same guy. So you can look that up. I know the inside story and I can tell you to this day, um, New Idea magazine got it wrong. Yeah. The story they published is not the story how it happened. Yeah. Anyway, that's one for that's people what, listening to look up. That's exactly that's a little yep. a little bit of a little bit of a side twist there. Hmm. So so you got the job. So tell us what, what would your day look like? What type of things were you shooting back then? The truth is it was very high-pressured sales. We were using Mamiya 645 system with the medium format 120 film. We had 15 frames that we could expose for a shoot. We had an hour to do a shoot. Of those photographs, you really had to sell about three or $400 worth of photographs to make it, to, basically to make your budget. Yeah. And if you weren't making budget, you know, the studio wasn't going to do well. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, pretty much you'd find yourself, you know, out in the street again. It was it was quite you know a competitive and high pressured sales job. Did did that did that pressure did that dampen your enthusiasm for creating images? No, I loved it. I loved it because you know I was probably only at that stage of my life twenty or twenty one years old, and people would come in and they'd they'd look at me like I was really young and they'd say, "Oh, so have you been doing this a long time?" And every single customer, I would say, "No, I haven't. You're my first customer." <laughs> And they'd, they'd look at me with those scared, crazy eyes and say, ah, no, just kidding. Because I actually was extremely confident. Yeah. You know, and I, I mentioned off, off, um, offline before that I was so confident with my lighting through having, you know, a degree in, in studio advertising uh, at the Queensland College of Art, I could light these um, studio lights accurate down a one-eighth of an f-stop. Yeah. And I loved it. I'd, I'd paint my own backdrops, I'd do my own thing, you know, I was very confident and cocky. So my boss wasn't aware that I had permission to do this stuff. I just did it. Yeah. The back wall needs painting, done. And I never got in trouble because we made our budget. Yes. And it was a case of, you know, why aren't you other photographers like this person? 
interesting what you touched on there because what I pick up from that is that, and it's what anyone shooting portraits is, you first need to have some type of rapport with your subject. Um, so that icebreaker that you technique that you used actually was probably doing your doing your you know working well for you. Yeah, and you know as as we're talking, the number of stories that I remember because really we had to do six shoots a day, six days a week. You know, so it was always a very high pressure. But I became a very skilled portrait photographer for doing this. You know, by the end, I'd set my lights up and I didn't have, even have to meter them. I knew exactly the output and the distance from the subject to get the result in the film that I wanted. Yep. You know, interesting story. We did, well, I had a bit of a reputation then and I, I had a lot of women who would come into my studio and want to do lingerie photographs. Yep. You know, I had a reputation for doing it well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe I didn't come across like a sleazy person or anything like that. Um, so people would come in for various reasons, you know. Some of them would be, oh, you know, my, my husband is, you know, I think he's seeing someone else and I want to I take these photographs to show him, you know, what he's missing out on. And yep. other reasons that I can remember, you know, well, unfortunately I've got, because you talk to these people, unfortunately I have cancer and I'm about to go through chemo, I'm going to lose my hair. Yep. So I want to do these photos now. Yep. And you'd have all these reasons. and. You know, some of my favourite shots would involve, you know, people kicking their heels back behind their head because it was a nice flattering pose. Yes. But the thing is, walking around in shoes in a shopping centre means you had dirty feet. So one of my things is that I would clean these women's feet for them. Right. But the thing that is really interesting that sticks to me to this day is how many women came into the studio because their husband liked their feet. Yes. We're okay. talking full, full foot fetish. And it's funny that you mention that because I'm, I'm not on this podcast, but I was speaking to a photographer last year and, and they said one of the things they used to do have to do is they used to have to clean feet because they don't come across in photographs very well. So it's interesting that you picked up on that and, and also did that. So it's, it's yeah, kind of interesting. With um, the glamour shots, because glamour shots were a really big thing. Um, They've kind of died off now. It's, you don't see studios kind of really doing that anymore. Do you have any idea, any thoughts why glamour shots kind of died out? I, I don't agree. I think glamour shots are still front and centre. They've just evolved. Yeah. You know, when people say glamour photography, they remember those feather boa shots from the 80s and that with soft focus. Yeah. Yes, I can do that as well. But in this day and age, you just look at Instagram profile pics or Snapchat or, you know, you know, the, the, the saying that, hang on a minute, your Instagram profile pic doesn't look anything like you. Um, or I think it's the Tinder app that people use these days where they, you know, the person that turns up is not the same it's one that looks like another person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Glamour photography is still, still very big. Yeah. And there are plenty of photographers who specialize in taking flattering portraits of people. Um, and, you know, the question is, if this is the best photograph that you've ever had of yourself in your life, What's it worth? Yeah. How much would you pay for it? So the principles of glamour photography are still huge. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the how long did you continue to, to work in that particular studio shooting that? Was that a long stint or did you decide yeah. to move on after? Yeah, well, I actually met my wife Maria in the studios there as well. So I left to join Canon January 2000. Okay. So I worked there for probably about three and a half years between studios at Darlinghurst, Bankstown, and Penrith Studios. Yep. Yep. So you went from that and you moved to Canon because um, Canon obviously produces cameras and photographic equipment. So what was your role when you started at Canon? Well, I realised at one point that I couldn't remain a glamour photographer for a whole career. I needed to go somewhere that I could actually have a proper career that was going to, you know, I could potentially see advancement in my career. I could move up through performance. Um, yeah, so I, I basically looked through the newspaper and there's a job for Canon as a sales clerk, a data entry clerk, yep. and it was titled Lights, Camera, Action. And I'm like, yep, that's me. <laughs> so that so that would have been very different from what you'd been previously doing well. So did it involve picking up the camera? Not at all. No. Not at all. It was data entry. I keyed orders for stores like Photo Continental. Yep. You know, I looked after territories in Queensland and Victoria, and it was just data entry from 
pretty much 8 a.m. till 5 p.m. Uh, there was also, uh, it was an old photo video division, which keyed film camera orders. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was also technical support uh, for, for particularly the store, the store owners who had technical questions about their, about their cameras. Yeah. So and that, that's that's why I was hired. Yeah. yeah. So where was that? Were you still in Sydney at this stage? Yes. Or? Yeah. Yeah. And so, how did you keep the the fire burning for the photography? What did you do? I didn't. I didn't shoot at that stage of my life for a long time. Yeah. It took me a while to get back into photography. Yeah. Um, I guess the experience from university, and a lot of people say that great art is born from suffering, and the university system felt a bit like that at times. Yep. Um, shooting six shoots a day, six days a week in portraiture, you know, it, it didn't do a lot for my creativity. By yep. that stage, I didn't want to shoot portraits anymore. Yep. Uh, and to this day, you know, it's very difficult to get me to host uh, portrait events for the collective. Yep. For that reason, I, you know, I wouldn't say I love it, but when I do, I enjoy it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's the, that, that was my, my early experience at, um, at Canon, and uh, I can't actually remember when I started getting back into it. We, when I say we, my wife and me, Maria, yep. we founded our wedding portrait business in 2005. Yep. So there probably would have been a good three-year period where I didn't shoot anything. And in that time, the world went from film to digital. Yep. Yep. And when you started, when you, obviously, um, with Canon, that was where you started. Um, then where did you move to from that position within Canon? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I worked for photo video division, but the odd thing is, is that we weren't the host division for digital cameras. It was the, um, we called them CSCPO. I uh, can't remember what that abbreviation means anymore, but they were the host division. So they, they looked after technical support for digital cameras. Yep. At that stage, um, after a couple of years of sales clerk, I was asked to found the photo video helpline. So we'd take technical help questions in regards to cameras. And in time, we became the host division for digital cameras. Yeah. Myself and, and another person uh, called uh, David Nicholson. Yeah. Was, uh, so that's kind of, that kind of come the full circle that you were now happening to kind of front up and do the technical stuff. Yeah, technical support. And like with anything, when you, you are getting 100 calls a day, you had to wrap them up pretty quickly. So you had to know what you're talking about. Yeah. So, you know, we built a catalog of all the marketing collateral for Canon cameras going back to the 50s. Um, because, you know, back then, a lot of those film cameras were still still going. You know, what battery does my FDB take? Yeah. It's an old Mercury battery you can't buy anymore. So, you know, you'd, you'd have all these questions that you knew the answer for off the top of your head. Or you could access the, the answers very quickly. Um, yeah, so that was that experience. We had a lot of brochures and a lot of <laughs> manuals. The irony is, is that most of the technical support questions we could answer off brochures. Yep. Yep. Because people wouldn't have had that stuff. They've lost it. And, and today we're, we're kind of fortunate that we have all this digital stuff available at our fingertips and we need something, we can ask Google and we can we can find it. 100%. So... So you moved into that division and you worked there, and then obviously because where you where you are now is in a very different part, and and it involves getting, you know, getting the camera out and actually shooting and actually also showing um, people how to use the camera and how to get the best out of the camera. So when did the you start with the collective? So I moved to Queensland in two thousand and three um, under the state manager Alan King as a merchandiser. Um, from there, I, I built up my career to be an account, an account representative, account manager, uh, field account manager. And then for one year in 2013, I became the pro rep for Queensland. Unfortunately, it was the last year that, pro, that there was actually a pro division at Canon. Um, and from, from there, it actually disbanded. Uh, and that's when I got picked up by Collective and started hosting um, photographic workshops. Yeah. So tell us a bit about the collective, because you know, there be people who may not know what it is, and how, how would you describe what the collective and what it does? So the Canon Collective is a group of people who work for Canon Australia who host photographic workshops, photographic experiences 
with Canon photographic equipment. So imagine if you wanted to try a 100 to EF 100 to 400 Canon lens. Um, if you walk into a retailer, you might actually might not actually be able to pick one up and shoot with it. Yeah. Whereas you can come with to one of our events, and not only can you try that, but we'll put a 5D Mark IV on your hands. We'll put a 1.3 times extender, show you how it works with the flash, and you can actually go out and experience some bird photography or something else, depending on what you want to uh, register for and what, what you want to shoot, and actually try this equipment in the field and learn how to use it. So even though Collective, it is a sales tool, it's, it's very gentle. Like we don't try and put the hard sell on people or anything like that, but through your experiences with the Collective, hopefully your success using the lens, you might go back and look at your photographs on the computer and think, wow, this equipment is really good. I can't live without it. <laughs> so you may actually decide yourself to go and buy a camera and a lens based on, you know, an experience that you've had with us. Yep. I want to touch on some of the some of the things that Canon Collective have done because they've done some pretty unique stuff. They've done some um, amazing stuff with some underwater stuff on, on like Lady Elliot and things like that. Um, what are your, I suppose, um, memories of some of those events and yeah, working with Lady Elliot Island and, uh, you know, the people that run the island there has been particularly, you know, inspirational, you know, basically a big turning point in my career as well because it showed me what was possible. Got to work with people like, you know, Canon Master Darren Jew, um, Gary Cranich, who's also, you know, a great photographer with Queensland Museums, uh, Sean Scott uh, on the Gold Coast. And these people came together to run photographic workshops and experiences. And we were all kind of on the same page, you know, we'd, We'd teach photography, we'd give people an experience with a product in a great location. So it's almost as if the, the experience became more important than the photographic opportunity. Yeah. But when you bring all these things together, it's just, you know, magic happens. And not just that, the people that come become friends and they're still friends now. Yeah. And even people from those first Lady Elliot, Lady Elliot events are still coming to collective events today and are still important people in our community, VIPs. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's interesting because um, and that's one side of the collective that that style of thing and but one of the things I noticed probably from some of your um, photographs that you take now because you do a lot of nature photographs as well I notice but also but it's probably do you think those experiences have raised your awareness of maybe how we've got to look after the the environment around us Yeah I think you've got to come back to Lady Elliot again there. The whole experience at Lady Elliot is is built around conservation and you know not not taking more than you need, um, working out that you know you can't just keep polluting things. You you know even the the solar panels they've got on the island. I understand the island's almost one hundred percent you know car carbon neutral now. Yep. Um, you know they're self sustaining. They have desal plants that run on solar. You know it's a pretty amazing place. And when you when you start seeing where those plastic straws end up, or even just light pollution that causes a turtle hatchling to walk the wrong way. You know, these, this life or death for these little fellas. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, Peter, who, Peter Gash from Lady Elliot, has rehabilitated the island and the Personia forests, you know, um, and the likes of Prince Charles has been out there inspecting it because he's done such an amazing job with this island. And the fish have come back, you know, being a no-take zone now. Yeah. It's absolute pristine, but only 50 years ago, it was a guano mine, and it was absolutely desolate. Yep. And I think that this is one of, the, one of the things that people learn about the power of photography. Photography, um, particularly with the environment, because it's such a great documentary tool that you can actually see before and after. So you can see that, you know, when someone puts the effort to try and rehabilitate, or we can go the other way where we see, you know, some of the practices in society, straws and stuff, and how it affects marine life. That, you know, with your camera, you're undocumenting that as well. Um, and it becomes kind of like, it makes it easier for people to see, I think. There's a saying that I learned at university, and I would love for somebody to get back to me and tell me who said this, because I can't find the quote anymore. Yeah. But it is, photography prevents the tragedy of a moment disappearing forever. And I would love to find that quote again, because that for me has stuck with me since first year university. Yeah. 
and, and, and it's such a true, I mean, it's such a true thing of photography. Photography, once you've taken that capture, potentially you've got it forever and you can um, share that with so many people. And, and what's happened today is, in fact, you know, when you're at university, you know, you probably only dreamed about, you know, the digital platforms and being able to move files around and, and that type of stuff. I mean, and I think that's what's probably helped Australia and places like Lady Elliot, the fact that those pictures go out on the internet. So people can actually see that and they want to come and visit it firsthand. Yeah, they want to be a part of it. And I've got to say that, you know, Lady Elliot, Heron Island, we also do workshops there. There is pristine barrier reef there. You see a lot of PR that gets out there saying the reef is ruined and blah, everything's bleached and everything's ruined. And look, it's definitely got its pressures. Yeah. But there is also pristine barrier reef there to come and have a look at. Yeah. It's very important to actually take the time and come and see that as well for yourself rather than just reading, you know, other vested interests and opinions on what the barrier reef is or isn't. So with all the collective events that you've done, has there been, has there been a standout event? Take away, I know the, the Lady Elliot ones and, and all that um, um, unique, but moving away from that, what other things have you done that you think have kind of been, um, you mightn't have had the opportunity to do that the, the collective's given you that opportunity? Look, there, there has been a lot and it's very difficult. And you can tell me more than one. Like we're not yeah. Gonna, we won't limit you. There's been so many. Like we did a great event on the Gold Coast with um, a, a six-time world kickboxing champion, John Wayne Parr, with a, a very good friend of ours, um, Matt Palmer, who's now based down in Tasmania. That was an excellent event. We did Outback Adventure where we, we flew out to in a minka to Birdsville to the dig tree over the um, uh, the Mori Mari Man. Yep. If you know that's the that's the big uh, the big uh, in the middle of the yes, desert. Yep. We we met. Uh, we went to Charlotte Plains as well, which is out in the middle of Kanamala, uh, which is literally that you know that red sandy desert dirt. And unfortunately, it's a sheep station, so that's not particularly good. They need a lot of rain out there. Yes, yeah. um, but there is a, a boar out there and the bird life and the animal life is just incredible. You know, landing a plane in front of a, you know, a pub, but in Birdsville, things like that. It's, you know, we've done some, some great stuff. We've been to, to Darwin. I went out to Broome doing aerials over Broome was a great experience. You know, diving the HMAS Brisbane and, you know, literally checking my, my you know, when you get down to the bottom there at 26 metres or whatever it is, and you check your air and you check your depth and you make sure everything's cool and you look up and, oh, my God, there's a freaking whale. <laughs> that's <laughs> stuff like that, you know. Literally, that's your thought process. Why, is, why, why can't I see the sun? And you look up and there's a whale, yep. like not 10 metres from you. Things like, you know, experiences like that, there has been a lot. We've also been, you know, had the absolute privilege of hosting two international workshops as well over to Europe, yep. uh, you know. And there's moments on those trips that, are just worth more than money. They're money can't buy experiences. Yep. You know, flying over um, Lake Eyre or doing things in Tasmania. You know, I've been very privileged to do these experiences. Yep. I could probably rattle off another ten that you know have absolutely moved me, shaken me to the core. Yeah. So, so it's really it's been really the Canon Collector kind of really unique. The way I see it, you know, from sitting back looking, and I've been to a lot of the the collective events and. I think it's kind of one of those interesting that, that um, not many companies do an after-sales experience like Canon does with the collective. It, it is really something. And I think for a lot of people, so those people that went on those trips, a lot of people, it actually helps accelerate their photography learning. Yeah, it does. Um, I mean, photography for, the, for a large amount, it, it's about getting confidence. Yeah, it is, a, it is about getting confidence and not being afraid to ask those questions. Um, one thing that you will notice about our community, and I think, you know, photography has always been a lone wolf occupation and a professional will take a lifetime to learn what they've learned and bucket if they're going to give it away for nothing. Whereas collective, we will freely teach you and tell you what we know. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the attitude that we want to encourage in other people to share experiences, to, to talk about locations, uh, share shot settings, um, explain why the best lens might be better for this location or you know this idea of where people can share their knowledge freely um, but also to nurture new photographers who might not be as confident people who want to post their photographs on the, the collective facebook page for the first time 
you know, and we've, we've built this over quite a few years now. Like last time I checked, I think it was 12,000 followers on that community. Um, but we, we do get rid of the people who, who will leave, you know, trollish comments or they're not there for the right reasons because we want those new photographers to join in the conversation. It's a genuine community. People share ideas and information. Yeah, and I think that's how, and look, for someone who wants to grow as a photographer, they need to surround themselves with like-minded people. I mean, that is, is part of, I suppose, the collective um, its strength is that you've got this big pool of people and someone I know it's like someone can throw a question out and very, very quickly they'll get a half a dozen responses to be able to how to solve an issue they're having or, or they just can't quite work something out and you could spend hours trying to find it, but there's so many kind of hands-on people and, and it's not just always hands-on, there's also people giving tips, I suppose, about you know, um, um, the creative side of it, giving creative ideas. Yeah, you'll probably notice that we rarely, the administration rarely actually makes comments anymore because it's become self-regulating. Yep. Like you'll have a question out there, what's the best aperture to shoot portraits? And before I even see it, there'll be 34 responses. Yes. Okay. And I read through them to make sure they're getting the right information. And I can't fault it like 99% of the time. It's great advice. Yep. Yep. So away from, away from the um, collective, because you get to shoot all the unique things, what does Greg shoot? What do you, if you're going to pick a camera up and you're going to go out and shoot something, what would you do? Or what would you shoot? Yeah, I guess that's the beauty of where I'm at. I don't have an idea what I'm shooting next. Yeah. You can probably tell where I'm at by looking at my Instagram account. At the moment, I'm in the bird photography again. Last week, I was still posting photographs from Europe. Yeah. Um, I guess what I like doing for fun at the moment is probably travel stuff. Yeah. I love it. I like, I like nature and I like bird photography. And I think that's an absolute art. It's an art of focus yeah. and patience. Yeah. Because you start learning to follow their the bird's mannerisms and characteristics and making waiting for that critical moment you know i'm feeling i'm feeling good about portraiture again so you might see a few portrait events popping up the collective page again yeah um and i think that's always people portraiture for most people is a challenge because i think um people don't want to take a bad photo of somebody so um for a lot of photographers there's a lot of pressure on when they want to you know take someone's photo because they want to get it right yeah there is i mean you've basically got another human being at the end of the lens there and they're looking at you with nervous eyes because they're vulnerable you know they're not most people are not professional models yep. they don't have you know 100 hours experience knowing what their best side is when to smile how to pose how to they don't look a million bucks in the latest fashion trends and everything like that they have insecurities yes and when they are standing in front of the the camera it's kind of like that nightmare that everyone has when they're young they're going to school with their pants on you know <laughs> they're nervous they're bare they're you know they're vulnerable yeah and you as the artist and the photographer can make them feel at ease and so, so part, part of your job as a photographer yep. is, is to be able to um reassure them yep and those scared eyes disappear and the number of times you see a bad portrait and you've got the subject looking back at the camera with eyes that say, I don't want to be here, save me. <laughs> you're, once you've got that, you'll never, you know, that, that shoot's finished. Yeah. You can't bring that back. Yeah. So you need to put people at ease. You need to be comfortable. There's ways to do this. It comes through experience. And even if you need to show them a photo or two on the back of the camera screen, you know, and make them love, if they love that photograph, they're going to look at you with new eyes. They're going to say, this person is worth listening to. Yep. I will do what he says yep. because yep. he's going to make me look great. Yep. And once we, you know, like I said before, if you take the best portrait that you've ever had, what's that worth? It's actually beyond value. Yeah. Yep. Excellent. So I want to I want to talk a little bit about um, some of your favourite gear. Yep. And obviously working with Canon, um, it probably allows you to be able to try a lot of new and wonderful bits and pieces. But what's your favourite, all-time favourite lens? What would you... <laughs> have to pick <laughs> okay it, that can this can change from week to week <laughs> it's just, just a creative kind of person you just yeah at the moment i'd say the 135 f2 is a stunning lens yep when i was in europe that rf 24105 can shoot everything 
Yep, and it's sharp, and the detail that comes through the CR3 files on it, on the EOS R, you know, um, I guess the 70 to 200 uh, f2.8 Mark III with, um, you know, at 2.8 when you're photographing portraits at 200 mil, the depth of field compression and the bokker at 2.8 is just perfect. Yep. So yeah, 100 mil macro when I want to photograph bees on a flower. Yep. Outstanding. Or um, even, um, you know, I, I lugged a 600 mil f4 around Heron Island for a week, photographing birds. Yep. So from week to week, I have it a different could... favourite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people, a lot of people will have will say, you know, look, look, you know, particular prime. Someone will say, you know, like I, I love my thirty-five mil or, you know, um, one of the prime lenses. So, would you go to a prime before you go to a zoom, or it really depends what you're shooting? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I. Coming back to what I said about you know allow your creativity to take over. I fall in love with lenses and focal lengths. You can tell whatever I'm shooting that week. I mean, I've been known in my time to try and shoot a wedding with a 50 mil lens because I just, I, I become obsessed about that focal length. Yeah. Um, but to answer that question a different way, the prime lenses previously have always been my favorite, but since the 2470 f2.8 Mark II came out, I started seeing a lens that was sharp enough as a zoom lens to print a billboard. Yeah. And I'd never thought before that a prime lens could do that. Sorry, a, a zoom lens could replace a prime lens to do that. Yeah. So from then on, I, I really probably moved away from shooting primes just for the convenience, particularly when you're going through a travel phase. 24105 is perfect. And look, and we'll, we'll talk about the travel thing because a lot of people are always interested in what to, um, when they're traveling, what kit to take. So travel... I think tr packing a bag for travel photography is an absolute art form. You know, how much do you take? How much does it weigh? Do you take it on hand luggage? Will you check it in checked luggage? <laughs> do you take that risk? Is there a risk even? Yeah. With my trip that I did, I packed all of my photographic equipment in hand luggage. Seven kilo limit. Yeah. I may have been over, but I only went over by maybe half a kilo. Yeah. Um, I used an f-stop bag with the um, an ICU and in a, in a camera unit. In that in that um, medium ICU, I had two EOS Rs, a sixteen thirty-five f four, yep, a twenty sorry twenty four one hundred five f four, the RF lens, and the seventy to two hundred f four. So you know, I'm saying f four a lot, yes, yep. because I chose to sacrifice the space in my bag for you know to not bring two point eights, yep. Um, because I just decided they were too big and heavy. And with what I wanted to do, I was rarely going to be shooting shallow depth of field. Yep. And with the ISO performance on these cameras now, I'm really not losing a lot. If I went over there to shoot portraits, it might be a different story. But for me, to, to bring everything in hand luggage with my laptop and external drive and mouse and mouse pad and the things that I'd need, that was perfect. Because that's something that's a bit of an art to get efficient when you're traveling, to get efficient with your kit. I think a lot of people struggle. I know um, we talked off here before on my first trip overseas, I, I packed way too much gear because I just thought, oh, I might use this, I might use that. And then, and the reality is that you don't. So it's good. It's a good lesson to learn to try and do it. And for probably people who are thinking of traveling, it's actually a good exercise is to go out and spend a day shooting and just take minimum amount of gear and just make it work for any given situation. Well, this is what, what I do. I lay all my camera equipment out on the ground. I line it all up and I kind of take a, a photo of that. Like it's like a flat lay situation. Yes. Yep. Then I weigh them like on a little scale. Yep. Then I write down the serial numbers and I attach everything together and all this information I store in the cloud. Yep. Like, as in like on, on my Dropbox account because this actually becomes my, you know, my travel uh, uh, kit which if I lose it or it gets stolen... I can easily pull that information down when I call the police or you know my insurance agency, yep. um, and I've got all that information ready to go. And when I'm feeling particularly anal, I'll even have receipts attached to it back when I owned my own kit. Yes, yeah, yep, and I'd store that information there. And yep, it look there. There comes a time when you need to make a claim that everything is just lined up just so. 
And that's probably a really good tip because a lot of people don't even record the serial number of their gear. And, you know, it is important if something does go astray and, and look, when you're travelling, those things can happen. You know, um, something can be taken or whatever. And if you've got access to that information quickly, obviously, um, and even just to prove that piece of gear is yours, if it's found, like, you might say, yes, that's my camera. And they say, mm, prove it. <laughs> but if you can produce that, inf you know, that information, obviously that makes it much easier. 100%. So, so um, the other things that you've kind of done or is where do, where do you kind of see your photography going from here in the next five years? You got to, have you thought about it or is it just going to just see where it goes or have you got a plan? I don't have a plan. I never have a plan with my photography. It's just the random kind of person I am. But I would like to pursue video, capture more. Um, I, I, I would like to continue my travel photography. I love it and yep. I like to write about it as well. Did you include some video in your travel? You've been doing yeah. it? Yeah. Yep. Um, maybe not for the reasons that people think. So say, for example, if I'm there with my camera set up taking that you know, great photograph at sunset in Zurich you know, from the right location, what I've learned is I will also switch my camera into video and shoot some 4K video yep. so that I can upload it to stock libraries as well. Yep. Because I might sell the photographs, but I double my money if I can sell the video as well. You know, and that's and that's kind of one of the games we play as travel photographers to try and sell a few images, you know, through uh, through stock libraries. Yep, and I think you've hit the nail on the head with video because what's happened, and I've had lots of, you know, commercial photographers on the podcast, and they've all said now that um, more and more of their workload is video because clients are wanting video content, and I think it's for people out there who's starting off with photography. Um, Modern DSLR cameras can shoot great video, um, but I don't know that many people that you do shoot much video on their cameras. That's a tip I've got for anybody who wants a young person starting out wanting to be a professional photographer. If you can't shoot video, the client's going to find someone who can. Uh, you know, and they still might hire to shoot stills, but eventually there comes a tipping point where the budget for video is greater than stills. And you've got one videographer that says that I can shoot your stills for you. Yep. Guess what? You've lost a customer. Yep. So, you know, if you want to make a living from your photography, you need to do both. You need to have multiple revenue streams coming in to survive as a, a I guess, a creative or an image creator. But having said that, you know, the world's changed. You only have to have to listen to, to what's going on around you to realize that, you know, for example, schools are hiring content creators now. It's a full-time job. You know, they want to put some PR out there. They want to record their lessons so students can watch again the, the lecture at any stage they want through their iPads. Um, they, schools have billboards these days. I mean, I know that some schools in, in, in Brisbane here that have their own flight simulators and things. Yeah. You know, so there's, a, there's competition out there to show who's got the best school and why you should send your kid there. Um, and particularly, you know, when you're talking about private schools, there's a lot at stake. So there, you know, there are careers out there for people who create content and you only have to look at yourself your own social media behaviors you know when you scroll through facebook or instagram you know what is the percentage of video you engage in and the number of stills you engage in you know a content creator has to be able to do both now yeah yeah what would what would be advice for someone who's maybe um thinking about embarking on a career in photography with all the all the stuff that you know um, and all the things that you've done, what would you say to somebody? First thing I would never say is don't do it. I mean, it always seems hypocritical when the, when the lawyer tells his son, don't be a lawyer, it's too hard, son, or the real estate agent says, don't do this, you know, I don't want you to struggle like I've struggled. I would never say that to a young person who wants to be pursue a creative pursuit because somebody is going to get there and get to the top of the tree one day. It has to be someone. Why can't it be you? Yep. However... <laughs> my advice is um, firstly you don't get into photography because you think you're going to be a millionaire it doesn't work like that you do it because there is just nothing else that you can do this is what you want to do it's not just a dream you live eat and breathe it on your weekends after hours you do all your work experience and things like that yep. because you just have to but if I was to give advice I would say you can learn photography yourself go to university and learn something you can't do yourself like cinema, graphic design, a master's of marketing degree. Yeah. 
And if you love photography, you'll get there anyway. You'll learn it yourself. There's so much YouTube information out there. You could literally do your degree online. And look, we do live in a blessed time that we're all this information available to people as well. So how, how you've seen over the course of your career and how have you seen photography change from when you first started to where photography is today? Have you seen like a, mm. a difference or do you think it hasn't really changed? No, it's, it's changed all right. Um, when I was starting out, there was a little bit of magic about a photographer. We'd use these light meters and we'd put on a little bit of a show about how we'd go out to it. The wedding photographer would shoot with the medium format camera with a ground glass screen looking down into it. Yep. You know, they'd advance the role of film. There was a bit of a show that you'd put on to show that you are the master, you are the photographer. The commercial photographer would shoot, you know, six, four transparency slides and a view camera, you know, uh, moving the front the front uh, of the, of the uh, bellows forwards and backwards to get the plane to focus right. A bit of magic involved in what we did, but today we consume imagery like a commodity. We just swipe up and down and, you know, we decide very quickly whether we're engaged in the image or not. You know, and it's subconscious as well, you don't think about it. But what makes you stop and look at an image, I think, you know, there is a lot in that and how we get people stuck in our image and saying comments like, I don't know what it is about this photo, I just like it. So yeah, the way we consume imagery, but the other thing is it's, it's only a right click and a save away from stealing someone's work. You know, a lifetime of experience has gone into that photograph that you just right click and saved. And I'm not having a go at people for doing that because everyone does it, I do it, you know, we, we all do it. But um, at the same time, it just goes to show you that the way that we consume imagery has changed. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the value of an image has changed and it no longer has the value that we would like to have a career by selling these image, images. Yep. I'd like to touch on another area that you've been involved with and I think because I think it's always interesting and, and I've heard you speak about um, you've judged images and um, some of the things that you've looked for and you were talking about you know about an image and you see something you like and you're trying to work out what it is. What is it you look for when if someone presents an image what is it you're looking for in that image? Good question. Um, I love looking at imagery and I have for my whole life. Um, first of all, I want, I want to be um, moved. I want to see something I haven't seen before. I want a first impression. From there, I want to look closer at the image uh, and if I'm rewarded with new bits of information inside that image to take, to take my imagination somewhere, I love it. Yep. You know, and that is an image that I could, I could reward the artist by giving them, you know, a silver distinction or something like that, you know, because an intelligent person has crafted that image for me. The old saying, a picture says a thousand words, is true. Excellence in visual communication. Um, a, a guy who was an excellent, uh, an amazing photographic judge called Ian Poole, he always said that the key to unlocking a photograph is found somewhere inside the photograph. And that's what I mean, like is there something there that you can find that will reveal a bigger story? It doesn't matter if it's not true, it only matters what's happening in the viewer's head. Yes, yeah. So please move me. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, you know sometimes you do get those pictures and you do look at the picture and you first, it's a picture that stops you and you look at it and, and you do start to look and then all of a sudden you'll see something and then you'll start thinking about why that element's there and trying to work it out and you'll, you'll come up with your own story. It mightn't always be the, the story that the, the photographer was trying to sell, but I mean, but that's, and we hear people talk about this all the time about, you know, um, photographers are storytellers. But, and is that where you feel the photographer is? Yes, I do. I, I, I would find that saying to be, you know, it would limit the photographer to only one sort of thing. But yes, I do think that great photography tells a story. You know, an example of, of that would be my wife took a photograph a few years ago that she put in APA. Uh, and it's a guy on an on a oxygen machine with his son sitting next to him with a soccer ball and a look of disappointment on his face. And next to him is like, you know, when in a chair that someone has sat in and enjoyed for a long time, it gets like a little groove in it, you know, where the yeah. backside goes. Yeah. There was an empty spot there on the seat where the groove's missing, you know, the the person who sits there is gone. Yep. 
And then you start reading some of the things around the room, like there's a dead sunflower facing away from the sun. Yeah. You know, there's, there's different elements in there. And you start reading this image and you think, oh, yeah, okay, so he's a, he's a smoker and his son's disappointed because he's got emphysema and he can't go play soccer. Yeah. But why is the couch empty? And why is there a suitcase in the, in the photograph? What does that mean? Oh, it's suitcase, you know, and there is a hidden level of communication in photography that might denote a journey. Yep. So where is this person going? Oh, he's, he's leaving the planet. He's, yep. he's on his way out. He's dying. Yep. And then you say, well, what's the groove in the chair for? Oh, that's because he's, someone's missing. And then you start thinking, what if he's already dead? What if that guy's not even there in the photograph? What if he's a ghost and his son's imagining the whole thing? Before you know it, your imagination is gone. Yep. You know, and then you see the painting in the background with a setting sun and black crows in it and things, and you're like, you know, well, hang on, this is, um, see? Yeah, and you moved suddenly. Yep. That image scored highest scoring print at APA in 2017 yep. because the judges took the time to look at it and read it, and the more they read it, the more information was revealed, and then they started thinking about it, and then it's painting a picture in your head. Well, that takes skill to actually put all that together and make mm. all those elements. Yeah. But that's kind of, and, and I suppose that's the, the um, how you grow your photography is you, you do have to put it, and you've talked about, you know, the blood, sweat and tears. It doesn't come, and I don't think people have, people you know, maybe listening to this um, see photographers who they aspire to and they think have done great, but none of them, no one really gets there overnight. It's a long road normally for most photographers. Yeah, it's true. It's a... It's a long road and success is not guaranteed in photography. There's plenty of people with better skills and more technical ability than me that perhaps are lacking that creativity or whatever. But there is no such thing as an overnight success in photography. And I don't think you ever actually get up, get, sorry, you, you never quit and you never give up and you're always learning. I, I'm a much better photographer now than I was when I started in collective through my experiences. And I'm still learning and I'm still getting better. And you never get over that hill. You always learn. There's always something new to learn. Yeah, and technology helps with that as well. Um, but I think the, you know, the old adage is the day you stop learning is probably the day you either hang your camera up and retire because you never, you never stop. No, exactly, yeah. exactly. So um, thanks for like, taking us on that, on that journey and, and you know, basically explaining how you've got to this point with your photography. Is there anything that you would, um, advice that you'd give somebody um, or, or, or a tip or something that you've got that that's, you've stood fast and it served you well over all the years? Oh, geez, I, I could probably think of a few, but we'll, I... We'll have a couple because, you know, yeah. people love, you know... I think that you need to be inspired. You need to keep a creative fire burning. If you don't know why, what inspires you or you're thinking that photography's not for you, or you're looking for the next challenge, you need to identify what that is. Is there a particular image that you, you want to copy? You know, is there a particular photographer that inspires you? Like you know, Mark Cosborough from V8 Supercars or Darren Dew with his underwater photography or, or Kelly Brown with her baby and family portraits. You, know, you need to find out what inspires you to keep you going. Like what are you gonna learn next? And once, you've, once you can sort of think, well, you know what, I'm kind of interested in portraits or something approach you know somebody in that field you know make some connections you know go and see a photographic competition where that person's work you know is competing and listen to what the judges say about it you know meet some other people who are sitting in the audience of that competition show them your work i mean i've often said putting your work in front of your peers to be judged is kind of like a football player player reading his poetry to the football team yeah it's difficult and it's hard, hard to put that in front of your peers but do it. You should. Yeah. And it's it's a very liberating experience. But even after all these years, it doesn't get any easier. Um, meet some people who inspire you, um, and approach that professional who just seems untouchable, too great. You know, because I I reckon if you went and shot an email to Darren Jew and said, I like your work, or can I come and see you speak one day, or do you do a course? You know, why wouldn't you go? on a whale diving expedition to Tonga with Aaron Chu. Yep. You know, life's pretty short. That's a pretty special experience. Just go and do it. Talk to them. Um, you'll be surprised how humble and down-to-earth photographers are. Um, I, 
I don't think there's anybody that wouldn't give you the time of day. And I think that's one of the one of the things that we've experienced, um, especially after doing some of the podcasts, is that um, a lot of photographers are very happy to share, but but you you know unless you ask them, they're not going to share that with you. So they're surprisingly humble people because at heart they're art artistic people, um, and they won't beat your door down to to give you their information. But if you ask them, you might be uh, surprised how approachable and how free with that information they actually are. Yep. Well, Greg, thank you very much for coming in, sitting down and having this chat. Um, where can people find your stuff um, if they want to have a bit of a look at some of your work? Yeah, I put the best of my work on my, my Instagram page of the stuff that I want to do, which is at Greg Sullivan, spelled S-U-L-L-A-V-A-N. Uh, you can join me at a Canon Collective event by looking at the canon.com.au slash collective page. Um, otherwise, just join our Facebook community. I regularly post work there to try and keep inspiring people, let them know what, what I'm up to, and yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. Thanks, Steve. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Photo Mission Exposure. If you liked the episode, please leave a comment. Also, you can follow us. Don't forget to tune into another episode soon. Thank you.